everyone. Welcome back to Reality 2.0. I'm Katherine Druckmann. Doc Searles is back with us this week, which is awesome. And we Howdy. also have a recurring guest back with us this week, and that is Dave Hughesby of Cryptid Tech, CEO and founder. And we're going to just kind of pick up uh, where we left off in last week's conversation because there was so much to cover and we just kind of got started, I think. And now that Doc is back, we wanted to kind of get a, give a little refresher both for Doc and, and for y'all and for me. And uh, yeah, so, but before we get started, I wanted to remind everyone to go to our website, which is reality2cast.com. That is the number two in the URL. And you can sign up for our newsletter and there will be supplementary links for this and other episodes. So with that, Doc, um, so you, you were just saying you you did catch up a little bit. On I, 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 caught, I caught like the first half of the show. And unfortunately, I, I'm abbreviated today as well because uh, I have a pretty tight uh, time constraints. But I, I I mean, I like the idea of pseudonymous authentication. I, I like, pretty much I like everything I heard, uh, Dave, where I, where I got kind of, and maybe you could just give me the cliff notes from last week, uh, and and for people who are listening only to this show, um, what, uh, but also not only what you're doing, but, but but also what you're offering to 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 Twitter, you know. And I thought it was really interesting. But if somebody asked me to say what did Dave say, I wouldn't be able to say it. So <laughs> it's know. okay. Neither okay. would I. <laughs> I'd have to go check the so, transcript again. Okay, so I'm going to try to take another approach to this um and i'll try to keep it very brief because we talked for like an hour and a half last time um so i wrote this article a couple weeks ago where i i was in some ways trying to defend elon's position that we should authenticate all humans um but also then protect anonymity he actually used the word anonymity but the word we like to use in the industry is pseudonymity, which is I have a pseudonym. Um, mm-hmm. And so this article opens up with historical context that the founding fathers, uh, both before and after the revolution, used to publish pseudonymously, right? They would yeah. not publish, yeah. um, they would not publish their political feelings publicly, you know, they would put it in their newspaper, they would pamphlet yeah. everything. And it was almost always under a pseudonym, you know, like Benjamin Franklin was notorious for this, right? He started mm-hmm. when he was just a teenager as Mrs. Silence Do Good. And then he pamphleteered in the, in the 1750s as a tradesman from Philadelphia. And then when the constitution was being argued about after the revolution, they were, you know, Madison and Alexander and Jay were all, um, sorry, Hamilton, Madison and John Jay were, you know, writing as Publius. And so it's a really common thing. Right. Um, and so it, it, the point and actually sort of the tongue in cheek humor of that opening of the article is that they were doing the 18th century equivalent of shit posting on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Right. They were saying edgy things. Uh, you know, maybe the king is not the coolest thing in the world. Maybe we should have our own country. Maybe we should do all these things that would normally get you in a lot of trouble, you know, and they would make fun of each other and, and, you know, call each other out and stuff. And it's basically what you get on Twitter, just the 18th century version of it and, or the yeah 18th century version of it. And they did it synonymously, you know, Benjamin Franklin didn't mm-hmm. sign his name to this stuff. Okay. So that's what it was historical context. So what Elon's asking for is not without precedent 
And then the other thing was, the other point I made was that um, there's actually letters between Madison and Jefferson when they're discussing the how to write the Bill of Rights, like exactly how we should do it, exactly what should be in it, what the political leanings of all the people who are interested in this, you know, all the delegates from the different states trying to get the constitution passed and da da da, right? Um, Madison encrypted those letters using a cipher system, not, you know, not unlike the Enigma that Jefferson had invented. It has wheels and everything. And, and so the point of all of that is that the people who literally wrote the constitution believed in and used technology to protect their privacy when they were making edgy political decisions and political uh, politicking, you know, campaigning and things like that. And so to, to argue that the First Amendment uh, and the Fourth Amendment and the Ninth and Tenth Amendments weren't in, intended, and the Constitution itself weren't intended to support this idea that we should be able to <laughs> shit post on Twitter is actually false. There's actually historical precedence. The people who literally wrote this did that, and they used technology to make that possible. So um, that I was hoping would just kind of maybe put that argument to rest, although it seems to have put gasoline on the fire. It's fine, whatever. Um, but what we're offering to get to, to cryptid and what we're, we're talking about here is that um, Twitter right now is a mess. People say, well, if you give, if you give people anonymity or pseudonymity on Twitter, then you're gonna get a bunch of illegal content. And by that, I mean, exploitative, you know, content, stuff that exploits children, that kind of stuff. Um, and then you're also, if you authenticate everybody, you're going to get dictatorships persecuting people who speak out against the regime, right? Well, I would argue that Twitter has both today. Um, you, you see Peter, you know, people who say things on Twitter and stuff are actually getting in trouble and they're still not doing a very good job policing, uh, you know, uh, illegal content, if you will content that exploits people right harmful content and so what we're trying to do is is improve the world by offering an alternative and the the alternative is with our technology which is open source by the way and documented and you know we're building out all these the tools to demonstrate this right now in fact demos are coming in like a week or two um Twitter could require everybody, humans, to go to a KYC vendor. And a KYC vendor is like a, you know, know your customer vendor. So that could be like your bank or a company like Finclusive or something like that, where they go and actually verify who you are. Um, and then give that data to you as authentic data. And I explained what that was last time, but we'll go into that a little bit more. But then the intent is that you keep it private and you don't ever share it with anybody because all you need to do to, uh, with regards to Twitter is to prove to Twitter that uh, you have been KYC. So it's like a proof of a heartbeat, right? It's mm -hmm. like, you, Twitter, you don't need to know who I am because this KYC vendor knows who I am. And by the way, you know we have some cryptography that allows law enforcement to, to unmask who I am under judicial review. But what it does is it gets Twitter out of the business of policing content and knowing anything about their, their uh, users other than that they are a heartbeat. 
So I believe or that they have a heartbeat. I believe this perfectly matches what Elon was saying. I want to make sure that they're all human, but then we also need to preserve privacy. And so this would allow people to be pseudonymous by default, which is one of the core you know, principles of user sovereignty. Um, you would start out pseudonymous, okay, on Twitter. Now that doesn't mean you have to stay that way. You could then, if you chose to disclose your, your identity, you could. So let's say you're a brand or you're a famous influencer or whatever, um, and you start up a Twitter account, it starts off like, well, what's your fake name? And they're like, oh, I actually want to be me. So I would be like, oh, it's actually Dave Hughesby. And then you could say, this is actually me. And then because you've been KYC, that there's actually a cryptographic paper trail, Twitter can actually verify you. And the idea was that, that we'd be able to at least differentiate between bots and humans this way. Um, and then people who are humans could remain pseudonymous if they wanted to, or they could then disclose who they are, you know, at various levels. Um, it's a, it's a capability that, that hasn't really existed in the world or hasn't, the reason we don't have yeah. it right now is because of revocation. That's the problem. Revocation at scale up until, um, our research in the last two years hasn't been solved. Right. And so Catherine's question about revocation um, we use these set proofs that are super compact. They're only 48 bytes and they can contain uh, an infinite number of proofs in it. So you can think of it as like, there's a set of all humans, right? Or there's a set of all KYC credentials. And I can prove to you that my credentials are in that set. And then if the KYC vendor is like, oh, Dave lied to us, or he's not really Dave and they want to revoke it there's an easy way to remove it from that set um, and without the involvement of the other person and essentially pull back your consent over that credential. So there's some glue behind the scenes that has to go on that's fully decentralized as well. But um, in, in short, the math exists to do what I call an infinite, infinitely scalable layer two solution. So we're not tied to blockchains per se, but um, in a blockchain terms, that's what it would be. Like these are state proofs. So if I have a credential, that's a piece of data and I can prove that that data exists by including it in this set. And actually I don't do it, the KYC vendor does so that if they ever find out that I lied or whatever, or my status changed and they're gonna revoke my KYC credentials, they just remove it from the set. So anyway, that problem has not been solved up until just recently. And let me tell you, let me just give you sort of a scale of what I'm talking about. The, the current best in the market today of revocable credentials. So you're talking about an identity platform, whether it's decentralized or centralized, whatever. Um, the best in the world today, well, I guess is what you see from the SSI community. They use a revocation method that scales with the number of credentials which means that if you wanted to give, say a digital driver's license to every person on the planet, 8 billion or whatever, 9 billion, the amount of data that set proof, you know, of like which mm -hmm. ones are valid and which ones aren't would be around 78 terabytes of data. That's 78 million or 78,000 gigabytes. Okay. That's not something that you could easily ship around. 
um, it would be difficult to make sure everybody had access to it so they could verify if a digital driver's license was valid or not. Mm -hmm. With our approach, this new uh, mathematical approach using cryptographic accumulators, um, because you can put an infinite number of proofs in a single set, in theory, it could be 48 bytes. But in reality, let's assume there's like a like a million issuers. Let's say there's a million institutions on the world that we're handing out digital driver's licenses. You know, so you got it from one of those million. Okay, even with a million issuers and a million set proofs, you're talking about four point three uh, megabyte. Uh, sorry. Yeah, I'm trying to do the math in my head. So. Let's see, what it was, if I said there was a million issuers and each one of them were issuing a billion credentials, yeah, you're about 3.5 gigabytes of data. So even if you had something that was, you know, thousands of times larger in terms of the number of credentials, the revocation data is only on order of single gigabytes. And so that's something that could easily be shipped around to a mobile phone or a point of sale machine or anything like that. So that has been the roadblock for why digital identity, I think, hasn't really taken off because you have to have revocation um, for authentic data, for digital identities, and there just isn't a good decentralized solution until now. This is a computer science innovation. Mm -hmm. This is a mathematical innovation. And it's actually old crypto. It's been around for 15 years. It just has never been used this way. And um, yeah, so the like I said, the SSI community's revocation data grows with the number of credentials. Ours grows with the number of issuers. So if you only have a few issuers, it's only on the order of like a few hundred kilobytes to a megabytes is the set data for revocation because it's it's an order it's an O big O of one data structure. It's it's called uh, yeah anyway. So, I hope that that makes sense, right? It's, I think I think so. But and all of that, I think I missed. Apologies. If um, so, if I want to revoke my own data as a user, like not the the intermediate intermediary, but if I say I no longer want to participate in this system, I don't care if I'm authenticated. I want to take back all of my data, and I don't want I want you to forget about me. Is that is that possible? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So. That would require, are you talking about it specifically in the context of Twitter? Well, Twitter or anything else, but sure. And in, in the context of Twitter, I don't want anybody to have my identity anymore. Delete my account, delete my third party verif identity verification. Uh, no one can find me. All of my content is gone and I've disappeared. Yeah. So there's a problem where once you've shared decrypted data, you have to assume there's a copy of it somewhere and you can't right. always force people to delete it, right? So there's no cryptography solution that would forcibly revoke someone's access to data. Because once you've disclosed um, data in the clear, you, you, right. you've Who's given it say? away, yeah. you lose control over it. The so that would have power. to be, yeah, that would have to be governed by policy or, or regulation. Right. Um, that said, I mean, that's why everything we build is based around the idea that sharing is obsolete. Although when you do publish things online, you would have to share, right? But when it right. comes to your data, your, your personal information and your identity, that, yeah. we now have techniques where we don't ever have to share anything ever. 
I mean, the people who do self-sovereign identity do this thing called selective disclosure, which just, that doesn't preserve your privacy. That just means I'm going to give it to you slower in pieces (laughs) instead of all of it once. Right. right? And what we're talking about, (laughs) yeah, what we're talking about is using authentic data, data that has provable provenance, cryptographic provenance, like it came from here. It, you know, it's it's tied to these key pairs. Those key pairs have been rotated. The data has been updated. All of that provable provenance as the foundation for moving to things like verifiable comp- verifiable computation and uh, programmable zero knowledge proofs, essentially. And what that allows us to do is reverse the arrow in digital transactions. Right now, what everybody does is they send their data to code. So if I go buy something from Amazon, I give them my name, my credit card information, all that stuff. And that all goes from me, my data goes from me to Amazon, to the, to the software on their server. And what we're doing is I now have my personal data as authentic data, provable that it was verified by an institution that has some societal trust, like a DMV, or a company that works on my behalf, like has a fiduciary relationship with me. Once you have authentic data, then, um, and it, it's not coming from me, it's coming from institutions uh, that, are, that have some societal trust, like DMVs, government, that kind of stuff, or, or private companies. Um, then I hold it, and instead of me giving it to somebody, what they do instead is send me a verifiable computation, or we do some kind of proof. Like, for instance, with tr- with Twitter, I would prove to Twitter that, yes, I have a valid KYC credential, and yes, it came from one of the KYC vendors that Twitter accepts. So, like, let's say Twitter said, you know, Bank of America is an acceptable KYC organization. Um, when I wanted to create my account, I would just say, yeah, I've been KYC by Bank of America. You don't need to know anything about me, but I can prove cryptographically that that is true. Um, if I wanted to buy something from Amazon, uh, it would be, yes, I've been KYC'd by Bank of America. By the way, uh, I am a Visa customer. Here's a proof, you know, a, a capability to collect payment from Visa um, that they can verify themselves because it itself is authentic data. And so then the fact that Amazon is asking Visa for money proves that I authorize the, the money transfer. Same thing for shipping. It's like, I can prove to you that I'm a customer of FedEx. Uh, by the way, here's the capability to get a shipping label for the thing I bought. And now I just bought something from Amazon. Amazon knows nothing about me, except that Bank of America knows who I am, that Visa handles my payments and that FedEx handles my shipments, but they don't know any of my payment information. They don't know where I live. And they don't know who I am, but because of the cryptographic paper trails and the and the relationships I have with these third party companies, should there ever need to be a law enforcement action, should there ever need to be a regulatory action, and there's a judge that says yes, here's a warrant, go figure out who the heck that was in that transaction, that is also possible. We call that perfect Fourth Amendment privacy, because, you know, we live in a society. And that's the, that supposedly is the balance we have struck, right? I'm private by default as a citizen, but if I, there's ever reasonable suspicion, then, you know, the judicial system can authorize law enforcement to go and violate that, right? That's what the whole system's about. That's what we all live under today. And we all want to have nice things and that's the compromise. So what we've constructed is the ability to do that. And it all comes back to, 
authentic data, right? Um, and that's just really, it's our solution for authenticity. You know, if you think about what's really going on right now with NFTs and Web3 and everything, it's a scramble for authenticity. How do I know this data is, it uh, came from where it said it came from, hasn't been modified yet, you know, like nobody's modified, or if it has been modified, here's how it was modified. Um, and so it's a sense of authenticity. And I, I take, <laughs> I take uh, issue with Web3 and with like all the NFT stuff because they seem to think that you need a cryptocurrency and we all need to pay fees for authenticity. And I would just point out that the certificate, authentic, the certificate authority system has been running for 25 years, providing authentic data in the form of X509 certificates that are independently verifiable um, without a cryptocurrency. So it proves that you don't need it with a cryptocurrency. And what we have built doesn't use a cryptocurrency either. And so the scalability of our stuff, the cryptography is so compact and the proofs are so compact. I mean, we're talking 48 bytes for set proofs and you know a couple hundred bytes for some of these uh, zero knowledge proofs um, that it, it, we can reach scales that have never uh, been seen before, right? We can make any and all data on the internet authentic. And that has huge ripple effects through basically every industry, literally every industry. Because, you know, I was just reading a, a thing from Vitalik today where he was saying that we're going to have these soul bound tokens or something and brought up that, uh, you know, universities could issue diplomas as an NFT. First of all, I don't need it. All, the, all that needs to happen is my university has been KYB'd, so their identity has been verified. And then I've been KYC'd so that my identity is verified. And then when they issue it to me, they issue, you know, signing it with their keys to my key, right? And I can protect my privacy because I can prove that of all the things in my personal provenance, one of those events is me receiving my diploma from this accredited university. And you don't need cryptocurrencies for this. You just need independent verifiability. That's really all it is. And that's what the provenance logs provide. And, oh, and there's one other point. Nobody thinks that you need history or nobody has realized that you need history, right? If everything now is going to be digitally signed or tied to a key pair, then there has to be a history of keys because we, we rotate keys all the time. This was a point I brought up last time. It's like, I have been a contributor to open source for a long time anonymously, but I can't prove it because I don't have those keys anymore. So I don't have a provenance log that ties my identity to the, all of the history of keys that I've had. And um, so if you have old data that was signed by old keys, you have to have something like a provenance log. So you can say, oh yeah, that key that created that signature 10 years ago was a valid key associated with that person or that organization. Or so anyway, that was a little bit longer than I wanted, but that's sort of the gist <laughs> of what we're talking about. Yeah. Okay. So Twitter. Because I've only got 20 minutes left. Uh, not that I want to speak for 20 minutes, but I want to work in some thoughts. One is, in, in respect to, to Twitter, Twitter is an example only of itself. It's also, I think, I'm not a betting person, but I would, were I to bet, I would bet that Elon Musk is not going to acquire Twitter. And it, it's almost a, a, 
it's kind of a moot point. Um, yeah. But I do think your idea for how authentic data is useful to them and that there, there should be, I mean, already on Twitter, if, if you're on Twitter, you can change your name to something else. A lot of people do that. You know, I yeah. mean, lots of people saying, but my name is I'm for Ukraine, you know, or now you click on it, you'll look at it as though it's actually so-and-so. But there are a lot of pseudonymous, um, a lot right. of examples of pseudonymity. They're, they're certainly not pseudonymous to Twitter itself, but they are pseudonymous to the reader. Um, I'm personally not fond of that because I'd rather know who the hell that is, you know, I mean, just because I follow people, I don't want to follow, um, you know, I don't, I don't want two layers of abstraction away from whoever the hell yeah. that is. But again, that's Twitter. And when people talk about, oh, Twitter is accessible, Twitter is this, everybody's look is different. They're all following different bunches of people. What the hell? I mean, it, it's, yeah. a, it's completely not a, a, a very good example of where I think you want to go. The fact that what you're talking, I mean, I would think authentic data would be massively interesting by those two words together, authentic data. Oh, cool. Okay. Without going into the particulars of how you have that, um, I think that's, I think that's strong shit, frankly. That's one thing. The, the thing I find myself thinking is what, what is the new thing that takes off, you know, and, and, and that the world falls behind? Where you're talking about the kind of scale that's possible with this, uh, that isn't when you've got the eight terabytes of whatever that you know, right? A server seventy-eight would have to terabytes. Yeah, of, that a, churn, yeah. a server would have to churn through, um, you know. But but I think that there's a, you know, we're we're sort of at a, you, you know, if you you ever watch a time lapse of how cells divide like the cell of a zygote divides right you have two and then four and then eight and then and but then all of a sudden the thing is a sphere it's a blastula and then it goes through some other stuff and there's like a blur something else it morphs into another shape that be, moves toward viability i sort of think my, my own feeling is that the history of the internet is really only about 25 years old okay with since with since the age of isps and the first dial up and people's first experience with browsers yeah. 27 years really that's it so starting in april 30th of 05 which is when the last of the backbones that had a restricted policy on traffic stood down that was the nsf net and after that you know all all heaven broke loose and and you know it didn't happen quickly but there was this that's where i th i would date the internet we know from that moment in time but the one where all of us have phones is really only about 10, 12 years old, you know? So, yeah. um, but I think there are steps beyond where we are now that don't start with, I'm going to make a startup and, um, and I'm going to have a unicorn. Now I hope you do have one Dave, but I, I, but I think there's something kind of old school about that. I, I think, what we need is something that's like ice nine or the Andromeda strain, you know, something that, that changes the world by changing the, you know, the, the temperature at which something melts or congeals, or, you know, there's a, yeah. that accelerates a state change because this is a better way to do it. We've seen this with code, you know, something useful comes along and suddenly everybody's using it. You know, I, I remember when, when Ruby took off, you know, and rust and all these, they're, 
and and O'Reilly had a really interesting series of histories about the uses of different kinds of code that all of a sudden, you know, even though they were laying around for a bit, suddenly got used a lot, and then all and the world changed, right? Uh-huh. So, um, so it, I guess my question is, do you have a fantasy about this that is a particular application or something, something that? billions of people are going to be doing that they aren't doing now and and it's on their devices in in a sense that whether or not it's on the front page of their phone um because they've chosen to put that little rectangle and or that little square on the front page of their phone whether or not not it's there it's 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 front burner for them because they take it for granted what what would that be well uh let me see so that's really great. First of all, I, I don't have a fantasy of having a unicorn startup. Yeah. Um, I, I'm an open source guy. I look at this as like ice cream. Like I'm the guy walking around just handing ice cream out to everybody. Like, you know, right, yeah. it's like field day in elementary school. Everybody gets an ice cream. Come here, get your ice cream. Like, because yeah. it's open source. We're trying right. to give away this code. Well, right? that, that, that's Neil Stevenson's uh, metaphor in, in the beginning was the command line, which he wrote in like 1998. Exactly. It's like, wait yeah. a minute, uh, you know, at, at that time, you know, Microsoft made bad station wagons that fell apart and Apple made something that was completely weird and, and closed. And here are these guys giving you away tanks, right? And have a tank. It's free. Yeah. You walk off with it, yeah. right? Yeah, that's exactly what we're doing here. And so I think, let me see if I can divide this up into, in a few categories. So if you're talking about just normal everyday people who have a phone, First of all, the math that we're talking about is simple enough that it easily runs on phones. It runs in the most embedded chips you can imagine as well. Okay. So, um, because everything is so small, like the, the proofs and everything is so small, which I, I don't want to get into this, but there's, a, there's an argument to be made that the most profound um, innovations are ones that uh, go the farthest back in history, in computing history, and the computers could still use it. So like, uh, you know, mm. we were joking the other day that our set proofs and our revocation and stuff could be programmed uh, for a PDP 11 and the proofs, since we can anchor in Bitcoin in the 80 bytes in the Bitcoin, that's an effective mm. anchor. That's an 80 column card. So it could be punch cards on a PDP 11. Right. Um, that's how we know that this is a really, really big deal. That's why we're confident yeah. that it is. Okay. So end users, everyday end users, here's what's going to happen you probably won't know that you're actually doing this. It's going to yeah. be like a matrix change behind the scenes because we're really trying to become Intel inside kind of thing, you know, like I get right. Intel's, we want to be the thing that, you know, or like the UL logo on the back of every piece mm-hmm. of electronics, right? So everything you create, every photo you take, every video you take, every audio you record, every text message you send, everything like that can be captured in a provenance log. So associated with a key pair that's either yours or for the piece of data itself and can be anchored. Because we use these sets that do not scale with the number of proofs in them, that they're fixed size, it's possible to basically amortize the cost of a single Bitcoin transaction to zero, okay? And and we're not married to any blockchain, but I'm just using Bitcoin as an example. Okay. So that means every photo that everybody ever takes, every video everybody ever takes, every text message you send, everything, right, can be 
there can be a provenance log associated with it. And that provenance log can be anchored in a set proof in a single Bitcoin transaction. And that alone makes whatever data you did, um, you created authentic data. Meaning that if you handed that photo and the provenance log to somebody else, they could independently verify the data in the provenance log. So any metadata with the camera, with the photo, the photo itself, your camera, any identity data you've um, associated with it, any rights, like, is it public domain? Is it all rights reserved? And, you know, is it a, a creative commons license? Whatever, that's also in the provenance log. And we can do that at the point of capture. So I think what you're talking about when it comes down to um, the end everyday person who has just a cell phone, what we're going to allow them to do is to assert their rights over every piece of intellectual property that they create. And mm -hmm. creating authentic data is effectively free. That's the, everybody gets an ice cream here, everybody gets a tank, right? Tell me about a system that everybody can use without really thinking about it, that captures every piece of intellectual property of an individual and allows them to assert their rights in a way that it's independently verifiable by anybody. And it also gives me an easy way to, you know, commercially license it, turn it over to public domain in a provable way in which everybody who looks at it can go, yes. And the cryptography involved ensures the security. We're talking about the strongest open source cryptography you can imagine. So, um, that I think is going to be the thing that everybody will be doing soon. Um, and then I think this has far reaching effects in the world. For instance, can you imagine looking at it? What we wanna do is because this is free and so ubiquitous, okay? We want to change black into white and white into black. What I mean by that is when I look at a news website, I want to question why there's even any data in there that doesn't have provable provenance. Every photo should have a provenance log. They can, that I can, as a reader of that news site, I can get that information, click on it or whatever, and see that the person who took the photo was this photojournalist and they were using it, this camera and they were in this location and it hasn't been modified. Or if it has, here's a transparent record of how it was modified, like we cropped it or whatever so that we can provide radical transparency in our news reporting. And if you're a legitimate journalist, you're going to want to do this. And this, because of the pseudonymity part, that's also important here because then you could be a whistleblower and you could protect your identity in a way that still provides the authenticity piece, but doesn't reveal that you were the person who took the picture and then smuggled it out of a war zone, for instance. Okay. However, we can tie it back to a GPS location, to an actual camera. It was anchored at the point of capture, right? And there could be that level of transparency involved so that um, the trust from the camera to the web page gets transmitted accordingly, gets transmitted in a trustful way, right? The trust of that photo. And so because it's so free and, you know, it has the potential that it's ubiquitous and totally free, you know, as in beer. Um, I foresee 
a future, hopefully in the near term, where crowdsourced media, you know, I have a cell phone. I took a picture of that incident that happened. Uh, crowdsourced media has provable provenance. And everybody who takes a picture of something or whatever, and it's used in a newscast, gets properly compensated. And then there's also uh, provable provenance. And when I look at a news site, everything on that page, every editorial, every reporting article, every piece of text, video, audio, photo, everything, every individual piece of data on a news thing has provable provenance that I can examine if I want. Um, that way, we don't have to look at news sites and wonder, you know, like when CNN applied a filter to Joe Rogan's video to make him look sicker, you know, that kind of stuff, like mm -hmm. that kind of nonsense would be immediately um, visible, right? That's a form of a deep fake, actually, in my mind, you know, creating a false impression by selectively editing or carefully editing or, or taking out of context. Um, this kind of provenance stuff would, uh, could possibly put a huge damper in that. And I, I would expect that people who consume news to start wondering, well, why doesn't that have provenance? Or what is the provenance in that photo? I want to know where that came from. I want to know who wrote that, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, the other piece of this, the thing that I'm really excited about, oh, sorry, you're going to say something? Uh, I, well, I, I, as a journalist, what I'm thinking about are, are stats or facts. I mean, you know, what are... <laughs> I mean, those things are in short supply lately. I mean, actually, they're an abundant supply, but the supply of things that are not facts is more abundant right now. And the motivation yeah. to to say false things about a lot of stuff is there, too. So, well, yeah, I mean, I think that's a I mean, I'm I'm thinking, OK, if you're a research organization and you want to produce something that where, you know, and I, here's another interesting thing to me is I. Um, it's not only that I, I want to credit who I get it from, right? Like, let's say, um, party A has facts about an event, party B sources those facts. I learn it from party B. I want to say, here's, here's the authentic data that they, I have authentic data that came from party A through B, that kind of thing. Yep, and it has provable provenance because you have this right provenance law, and it, and, there's, and, and we get a supply chain as well, which I think, which yeah. I think actually uh, Catherine wanted to ask about. I think that the supply chain conversation may have to wait for another episode because that one's going to get long and complicated. Yeah. Um, but that you know, here's the thing about every time Dave joins us, I have to go back and listen again. At, like while I'm in it, I am just listening honestly. And I have yeah. to listen to it again. And then I think up questions. But um, yeah, anyway, sorry. Go, so, go ahead, Doc. Uh, well, I was going to say, Doc, another thing related to the, the supply chain stuff. Um, provenance, they are, this approach that we're trying to give away and show the world how to do um, would allow for the very first time ever to have complete and traceability for every contribution to an open source project all the way through a build. Um, if you have a reproducible builds, uh, you know, CICD pipeline, it would all link to that. So you could account for every line of code going into a piece of software and then every piece, every step of the build process in such a way that um, what Kyle brought up, other people could reproduce it and then could vouch for it, which would be really great for a company like Purism doing 
firmware and things like that. But it's also going to be really great for companies like Freedom of the Press Foundation doing, you know, secure drop for whistleblowers or frankly, any piece of software, Signal app, uh, you know, anything that demands that we trust it in some way, um, I would think would want to adopt something like this. But there is one other aspect to this that I wanted to touch in last time that we didn't even get close to, which is we now, because of this sort of universal approach to authenticity, we had the ability to, to move towards a new API security system that we're also, we've also open sourced. It's called Oberon. And it has similar uh, privacy guarantees and things like that. Um, but we are in the process of getting off the ground. What I, you know, la uh, I just kick this around in internal meetings. I call it the great open source inclusion project. Um, one of the problems in, in open source projects is that the only thing we typically have a record of contribution wise are edits on a wiki and code commits in a repo. And Mm -hmm. uh, using Oberon, we have this ability, and Oberon uses provenance logs, and you know, and I'll get to that in a second, um, has the ability to tie in all of the interactions with APIs um, in an open source community. So any posts on a, uh, you know, on a message board, any edits on a wiki, anything that helps organize an event, sending out emails, all that kind of stuff, if it's done through an, a platform that uses this, uses Oberon, we can also capture the, that actually in the repo itself because the provenance logs would be in the repo associated with the people doing these things and their contributions to the community can also be put into the repo. Um, and so I do want to touch on Oberon because it's totally open source. And this is another thing that I think is going to be fairly ubiquitous, which is um, it enables for the first time real zero trust architecture, which I don't think a lot of people understand that zero trust architecture means we're getting rid of the firewall. There's no such thing as inside the firewall and outside the firewall anymore, because you literally don't trust anything. So yeah, this this Oberon thing, I'm really super excited about, um, because the the characteristics of the Oberon. It, so this is a replacement for API tokens. It's a replacement for okay. Open ID, all that kind of stuff. Um, it has, I don't want to get too deep into the cryptography, but the the ergonomics of the system is a lot better for security. Um, Issuance of Oberon tokens uh, requires some digital signing on part of the issuer, and it can be done doing a decentralized signature or a distributed signature system. So you can do like M of N or threshold signing is what that's called, where to issue a credential, you would have multiple machines that would be, that would have to participate. So that increases the level of compromise that an attacker would have to do to be able to falsely issue Oberon credentials. So there's that. Then the protocol for issuing Oberon tokens is such that the issuer never sees the token itself. The, the client generates it. And then there's a protocol for the server to sign it without ever seeing it. And this is important because in a world where everything is, you know, moving to capabilities and we're doing cryptographic signing for everything for trust and, and integrity, you don't want servers to be able to impersonate clients because if that server ever gets compromised, then whoever compromised the server can then impersonate one of the clients. Okay. And um, so there's that, right? So that this also increases that the servers themselves are actually incapable of impersonating a client. So you don't create high value targets like we normally do, okay. you know, like 
you want to steal everybody's credit card number and Twitter or say like, you know, what happened? Target had a whole bunch of them. You only had to compromise one database. Yeah. And then you got all the credit card, com uh, credit card numbers. Well, think of this as like those Shopify and, and Target would know about us, know that we exist, but they would not have our credit card numbers. And there would be such a cryptographic relationship with them that I could prove that, yes, I'm a valid Target customer. And yes, I have valid payment credentials and you can let me pay for it but you don't need to actually have my payment information, right? right. So Oberon works in this way. I, when I get an Oberon token from a server, I, from then on, just prove to the server or to the endpoints that take it that I have a valid Oberon token. Um, and the cool thing here is that endpoints, meaning like the services that I'm talking to that consume my credential, mm -hmm. they only ever need the public key right. of the issuer present for them to verify this. And so that means that service endpoints themselves can be hardened against takeover. So if you, if they get, get compromised, they no longer, or they don't divulge anything about the clients and they can't be tricked into issuing Oberon credentials and they can't deny an Oberon credential. <laughs> that makes sense. You would have to take the server out to deny access to the service. So the servers, the service endpoints themselves do not possess any data uh, that if they were compromised would compromise the security of the clients, right? Um, that's, so these are, these, are all, these are all things that don't really exist in the world. These are all improvements over existing API security, you know, um, that don't really exist in the market because they're all cryptography based. Um, the, the stuff that we were, that we're about to launch next that we're about to open source now oberon is totally open source and it's been used right, okay. in in industry already there are companies that are using it um it's been out uh in the world for, i think a year now and the first we've had the first couple of companies adopted in the last few months can, um can next, you say anything about the ways in which it's being used exactly as i described api endpoint okay, security exactly what you okay said. yeah and one Nothing of the more one interesting than that <laughs> yeah, and one of the cool things is, is it it's actually a drop-in replacement for OpenID, and it collapses the OpenID stuff from a three-party model to a two-party model because you know what OpenID is, right? Like log in with Twitter, yes, yeah. log in with Google. That yeah. So you don't have like this third party vouching for your identity anymore. You just go and get your credential, and then you can talk to the API endpoint. Mm -hmm. um, but if you really still have infrastructure that uses OpenID, well, then the issuer is that third party, and then you never have to talk to them again. So there's a one-time sort of login with Google, but it, what it does is it gives you an Oberon token. And then that token and the proofs from the token can actually be the payload in the OpenID uh, protocol. So there is an obvious migration from the existing, you know, federated identity protocols to just moving to point-to-point uh, -point Oberon and zero trust architecture. Um, so the next thing we're launching is this, is a thing called, um, it uses a technique called redactable signatures, which is uh, a thing out of Ponchival Sanders uh, signatures, which is what Oberon uses. And this one might get a lot, get beyond <laughs> some people. Uh oh. But, okay, here it goes. But uh, let me let me give a let me take a crack at this. So, um, when you go to talk to a server and you want to prove that they that you have the capability, like you have been granted the right to use that service, okay? The best that we have right now in the market is private set intersection, which means that I can send a proof to the service that 
the, the capabilities it provides, let's say reading from a database, writing mm -hmm. to a database, uh, writing a log message or something, those three services. I can prove to the server that um, which of those are, or some of one or more of those is in my set of capabilities, the things that I've been allowed to do, okay? And the, the unfortunate thing is the server gets to learn all of my capabilities that I've been allowed to do that it provides. Okay, so there's a potential there that if that service is logging, that I presented a proof that says, yeah, I can both read and write from the database, um, then attack an attacker to that server could see that, well, I have the ability to write to the database, right? And so that might make right, me a yeah, target now okay. because I might be one of the few people that can actually write right, to that you, database. You have desirable privilege. <laughs> exactly, right? I have a desirable privilege that you might want to target me for. Well, with uh, redactable signatures, what I can do now is I don't know, I no longer disclose to the server all of the capabilities that I have that it provides, right? What I'm doing is I'm saying, I want to read from this server and I can prove to the service that of my capabilities, reading from that database on that server is one of them. And I've redacted everything else. And uh, so this greatly increases like the security of this interaction and it reduces the attack surface um, because the server, even if it's logging, is not logging that I have <laughs> desirable capabilities, as you said. That's mm -hmm. actually a really great way to put it. I'm going to use that from now on. <laughs> okay. Um, so anyway. Enviable privileges on our system. <laughs> yeah, basically, yeah. And, and the cool thing here about all of this is that this is how we're really going to be decentralized in the future. And just to remind everybody, I've talked about this in the past, uh, decentralization is about power. You know, like it's about yeah. me maintaining the power to decide my level of interaction with the server or my amount of data that's on the server or is my data even shared with the server? It's, it's a balance of power, right? Decentralization is about pushing power out to the edges, okay? And I've defined decentralization as the direction in which user sovereignty, the end user, their sovereignty, their power increases, okay? And people, comp they get this confused all the time on the internet. I don't, I don't think we agree on the definition. That's just my definition. Now, the other word is distributed, mm -hmm. which is actually... Uh, spreading out in terms of servers, hardware. So I say distributed is hardware, decentralization is power. Okay. Decentralization is about empowering like individuals. Like okay. Because, and here's the example. Okay. Facebook is distributed. They have many tens of thousands of computers all For over sure. the world to make oh, yeah. Facebook happen. But would you argue? Right, but would you argue that Facebook is decentralized in the sense <laughs> that I have- no way. Exactly, right? It's a totally centralized service running on a distributed network of computers, okay? So, but something like, you know, email, email actually is the most decentralized tool on the internet because today, like I could be signed up to Google, you know, Gmail, okay? And it's like, oh, I don't want to use Gmail anymore. I want to use, say, Fastmail or Yahoo Mail or somebody else, right? Well, I download an open source tool, like an IMAP client. I connect to Google using the IMAP protocol, open protocol, open source software. I download all my emails off of Gmail. 
store them in an open file format, an inbox file or a, a, a what's the other one, the, the mailder oh, format, yeah. right? Those, Those are all open standards. Yeah. Okay. And then I can go set up an account with say Yahoo or Fastmail. And again, using the IMAP protocol, I can then upload all of the files, all of my emails from my inbox file or my mailder format up into that new email service. Okay. So I am totally portable. My data is portable. My association with the service provider is at my mercy. It's completely at my mercy. Okay. And you know what? I don't even have to use a service at all. I could run an open source email server like XM or something like that on my own server, <laughs> upload my mail to that and take total control over my data and my relationship to the email system. Okay. Email is fully decentralized. The only reliance we have on some central authority to make email work is the domain name system, mm -hmm. I would argue. DNS, DNS, you know, people doing public key, uh, you know, uh, doing public key dis uh, distribution through DNS and, and domain name resolution. Because I am, you know, Dave at, you know, a domain and then, you know, you want to send an email, our right, servers sure, have sure. to resolve That's the domain to, to know. To yeah. So that's the only centralization. Um, part of email and it really is just to do what i call discovery that's one of the fundamental problems of decentralization and also um coherence which is also one of the fundamental problems of decentralization so there's nine problems we've talked about this in the past there's nine problems mm -hmm. that every distributed yeah that every distributed system has to tackle one way or another and to become a fully decentralized system, you have to have as many or all decentralized solutions to each of those nine problems. And email to this point has the most. You know, there's only two that it doesn't have that are fully, um, that aren't fully decentralized. And even then they're pretty decentralized. I mean, DNS is pretty much under your control, each of our controls if we wanna set up an email server. So anyway, that, that point, you know, we're moving in this direction where the world is going to be fully decentralized. Everybody is moving that way. I just want to define what that is so that everybody can start speaking in the same terms. Um, and Oberon security and this new uh, redactable signatures for authentication or for authorization, I think is going to be a key thing that gets widely used because first of all, it's open source. It's easy to deploy. There's obvious migration paths from your existing infrastructure. And it allows existing industry, existing enterprises to move to a zero trust architecture where you have defense in depth by default and privacy by default and auditability by default. And the, the piece that Cryptid, my company offers is the, the, the piece from my, um, that my company offers are the enterprise solutions that automate all of this stuff, but we are giving away the open source. So it's like very much like GitLab, right? Like GitLab has a community edition built on top of Git, mm -hmm. um, but then there's enterprise tools that do so much more where the exact same kind of approach to the market. I wonder, I wonder if we could kill some time talking about something silly like the Seth Green NFT thing while I have you here. Authentic data is NFTs without a cryptocurrency. Right. Right. So, I mean, our technology, because even, even if you just anchored in Bitcoin, right, we can amortize Bitcoin transaction costs to zero, essentially. Um, 
and you can have an infinite number of NFTs created and transferring hands and stuff like that per Bitcoin transaction. Um, so essentially the NFTs themselves, like that market, like the way they work now, I think will fundamentally change once yeah. our tools are widely used. That's one side of this. The other side of it is um, because everybody's asserting their, their ownership rights, their intellectual property rights mm -hmm. of everything they create and everything has provable provenance. One of the things that makes this possible is we can make legitimate copies. So we can fork a provenance log any number of times. So I, let's say I took a photo, I can make a hundred legitimate right. copies by forking it into a hundred provenance logs attached to each copy of the, you know, a hundred of them, they're all the same photo, but I have a hundred provenance logs that I have blessed myself as the original intellectual property owner. And then I can, you know, right. put the, uh, the terms and stuff that I'm licensing or I'm giving to the person who buys a legit copy. So one of the neat things about this and the fact that the software is embeddable, like it, it runs even in embedded systems, is that we can now unlock and automate third-party licensing of intellectual property. It makes everybody into their own media company. So this affects not only big intellectual property rights holders like Disney and Marvel and DC, mm -hmm. but it also affects even just normal people, right? I, what I want to get back to which I think is just really cool is there was a lady on Second Life. I used to work for Linden Lab, and really? there was a lady on. Wait, maybe yeah. we talked about this. We probably talked. I'm getting seen out. Yeah. Apologies. Go ahead. No, there's a lady on Second Life who made millions of real dollars <laughs> selling digital hair in Second Life, and wow. With the authentic data economy, this this infrastructure that you know these this approach that we're showing everybody how to use, um, the talented among us can get right back there without a second life, yeah. you know, I could make avatars that are then that look like can be used in <laughs> or whatever that, that can be used in any video game or any right. virtual reality thing. Sure. Yeah. I remember also, that, that sort of economy within second life. Yeah. Vaguely. Right. Well, this would open it up so that it's no longer platform specific because mm -hmm. now we have this open format, open protocol, open cryptography way of verifying the legitimacy of any piece of data. And so now platforms like Roblox or even video games like Fortnite, um, they can now possess this ability to verify the provenance and the proper licensing of any data being uploaded. And so they can open their, their platforms up to user-generated content, uh, content licensed from third parties that they never even contemplated. Like the, one of the things I like to fantasize about is um, I want to be able to get a copy of say NBA 2023, right? From Electronic Arts, okay? okay. And then I want to go to say Warner Brothers and license a Bugs Bunny avatar. And I want to go to Nike. And I want to license, you know, digital Air Jordan sneakers. And I want to go to whoever owns the rights, maybe it's Michael Jordan, maybe it's the Bulls or NBA or whatever, and get Michael Jordan's number 23 jersey as an outfit for my Bugs Bunny avatar. <laughs> and then I want to go and play, you know, Space Jam. I want to play NBA, you know, 2023 from Electronic Arts using an avatar from Warner Brothers, shoes from Nike, and a jersey from Michael Jordan, NBA, whatever, and just have it work. And what we're providing is the infrastructure, the knowledge 
you know, the knowledge and the tooling, the open source tools to make this possible. And I think it's going to be hugely um, impactful because now platforms can just, they, they have the ability for the first time ever to not only identify the creators, but also to manage the rights associated with it. This takes something like Creative Commons and kicks it into high gear. This creates mm -hmm. something like- the, uh, yeah, the attribution is automatic. Yes, right? And so if I made like a, say an avatar pack or something and I released it as a Creative Commons attribution, you know, like you can use it and it's free and you can't charge for it, but you have to just give me credit. Like that's all built in, yeah. right? That's all, like I could set that in the provenance log of each copy that I hand out, right? And then when they go to the platform that's going to use it and render it and allow them to play with it, it'll verify that. And, you know, any other player could, I don't know, get the info on that avatar and see that it came from me. Like, oh yeah, created by Dave, you know, and whatever my little marketing message is, you know, like get your copy from here, right? Um, and so that would enforce Creative Commons. Like this is the first time ever that we can fully, I mean, for lack of a better term, democratize the intellectual property infrastructure and market. You know, anybody can be a creator, any platform can be a consumer of this content, you know? So it's like Etsy um, on steroids. <laughs> yeah, but digi and digital, but actual, right? And but digital. digitally, yeah. Yeah, and I could see this as like, you know, I really want to build a crowdsourced media platform where every piece of media on it is has verifiable authenticity. Like it came from a specific iPhone at this GPS location taken by, you know, Joe Q Public, you know, was there, witnessed this happening and happened to capture a photo or a video of it and, and make that available for news, for content creators, whatever, and have like proper compensation. We'll get to finally figure out what the cost of a eyewitness photo really is, right? Yeah, because the, the intellectual property will be there. And, and if they publish the photo without the provenance log that shows that it was properly licensed to them, people are gonna start asking questions. Like, I think having this as a capability will change the nature of news reporting online because people, once they realize that every piece of data on here should have a provenance log, will start to wonder why it doesn't. Mm. That's interesting. So what I was hoping we could do yeah. is mm -hmm. give a little, just a, a wrap up based on all of the stuff that we talked about before. I was hoping doc, you would have some, like a, some thoughts. Okay. Well, I'll, 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 I'll give some thoughts that may or may not be relevant. I think on the one hand, we talk about data way too much and don't understand what it is or why it's important and what it isn't we call an awful lot of what we do data when it's really not, it's just useful information or useless information, but reducing everything to data is one of the big mistakes that we make. It's like reducing, it's like we, what we had with behaviorism back in the fifties and sixties, like we are nothing but collections of behaviors and there's a stimulus response chain and that's all we are. Um, I'm seeing the same thing with data right now. And that's on the one hand, on the other hand, I think, what we can do with data and what Dave is trying to do with data by with authentic data and provenance and all that stuff is really interesting and very much, I think 
the future and what we can do in the future, but we're not doing it yet. And I just want to see a path to success for that. So that's, that's one thing. Another thing is, uh, I think that what we have between digital technology and the internet is so new and profound. I mean, like every, every new medium obsolesces some other medium and, yeah. or some set of media. And even if the, those media are still around, we still have magazines. Condé Nast a couple of days ago said, somebody from Condé Nast, which is the magazine business said, we're not a magazine company anymore. We're like a data company. I mean, it's like, uh, I mean, what stupid, but, but the, you know, they recognize that, you know, people don't buy magazines anymore. They buy, you know, that they, they, they acquire information in other ways. They want to be in those businesses, whatever those are. But McLuhan said every new medium works us over completely. And what happened with the internet is it ate all the rest of them. I pay close attention to radio. Radio is getting killed right now. It is dying. Yeah, nobody listens to the radio anymore. And, and nobody, I mean, and, and, you know, I, even in the, even, and I'm a radio freak, you know, but like our car has Sirius XM, okay? I can also listen to Sirius XM through the car from my phone on an app. That's a much better way to listen than down from the satellite. Now, down from the satellite works great in the middle of Wyoming, but if if I'm listening to Howard Stern, for example, I'm listening to a news broadcast and and uh, or a sportscast, and what happens is when the the car is interrupted by the 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 traffic prompting of Google Maps, for example, you know, which is constantly say it tells you five times when you're merging with traffic, you know. Yeah. It, but if I'm listening to an app, the app pauses. I can rewind the app. I can. This is with SiriusXM's own app, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it's so much better. And and not only that, Apple and Amazon and um, uh, and Google and all these companies, big companies, are busy iterating what what replaces radio on a more or less constant basis. Every time an app, apps get updated, your podcast app, all these things get updated. Early podcast apps didn't have the you could speed it up feature. Now they have that one. You know, it used to be one and a half. Now you go one and a quarter. You know, Spotify lets you kind of do a, like a, even a dial with it. There's just so much that can be done with software that can't be done with the in the old hardware model world. Um, but it's early. It's really, really early, and we're just the 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 internet and digital technology is soaking into everything, and and we're just beginning to find out all the good and bad stuff that comes out of that. And it's what we were talking about earlier. There are more ways than ever for the world to go to hell now. There are more ways than ever to make the world better. Both those things are, our, are, are, are laid out on the workbench in front of us right now. And there are more ways to cooperate than ever. There are more ways to screw with each other than ever. And both those things are on the table. And, uh, you know, there's a, you know, there's a side of me that, and I'll, I'll be prejudiced in one way on this. I, I, the, actually, Garrison Keillor wrote a thing about this. He, he, uh, he said, it was in a, a book called The Book of Guys. And he said, so, okay, let's look at a picnic at, with a big crowd of people, okay, in any town. Big picnic, 
barbecuing going on, food preparation, sports outside, cornfield behind. He said, here's what happens. All the boys go outside and they pl- pretend to be playing with guns and they argue about who's dead. Um, and they play sports, they try to kill each other and have fun that way. And um, and all the girls are inside helping prepare the food and you know where, where the books and the people having real conversations are and are learning to form complex relationships with other people and, and understand how society works. And after 20 years of this, which group do you think is better equipped to run the world? Is it even close? You know, and, <laughs> um, and, and that's sort of how I feel about it. I mean, I, I have a family on my wife's side with six sisters and I watch them operate and it's like, they're on top of shit. They really are. They understand they're seeing things the guys are not seeing, you know, and, and a lot of it has to do with relationships and how the world actually works. Right. And, and it's not that everything gets solved, but it's a far more nuanced and com- and, and, and complex and I think healthy approach. Now it's not that guys can't do this, but I think that the solutions that start with conflict and domination um, are not as good as the solutions that start with, with cooperation and partnership. And the open source world is all about cooperation and partnership, even if there is competition for getting code into a base. You know, I mean, I, I talk to Linus and other developers about this is like, and it's, it's a great model. And it's like, is it useful? Great. Can we do it? Will it fix a bug? Great. Patch it in, carry on. Um, what works, this is what Andrew Morton told me. Is it, Linux is all about what works best for most people. Mm-hmm. What works best in most circumstances. That's it. We're building a code base that's going to support everything. How do we do that? You know, the code base gets bigger. It gets worked out. I mean, the, the original open source model that starting with individual hackers on up through collectives that are um, meritocracies with the most competent and encom- people with the most encompassing vision at the top, um, passing through patches and, and the rest of it is an awesome model for doing an awful lot of other stuff that I think is to some degree lost even within that community now, because so much stuff is being done in containers and other stuff where the, the really deep base stuff that's closer to the metal gets lost or forgotten. And the supportiveness of that at the base level is kind of lost or forgotten. And um, I don't have a solution for that, but I, I sense that, um, you know, in, I don't know, but most of, most of the world, by the way, is not politics. It's so easy to talk about politics because it's, it's, a, it's, it's a form of sports. But most of the world is actually commerce and people talking to each other. That's what most of the world is. It's, that's what it is. People, you know, talking to each other and, and trying to keep up with each other. And that's harder than ever now, too. I mean, I, I'm, boy, I'm getting, taking too long here. But I'm, you know what I'm dealing with right now more than anything else? This is going to sound really weird and kind of a downer, but in a way it's not. It's death because I'm, I'm going to be 75 years old this summer. Guess what happens when you're my age? A lot of people are croaking off, right? And I'm like, I'm like standing here watching people get picked off. A lot of them younger than me, right? 
what does this do? On the one hand, you get better and better at dealing with that. You grieve, you move on. What sucks up your time is not the grieving, but hey, Doc, if you, you got a lot of photos of this person, right? You know, go find those. You know, it's the it's the it's going after the resources of memory about these people that are important to other people at a moment in time. So there's a group that I'm going to see in North Carolina I haven't seen in five, seven years, okay? And I've lost touch with a bunch of them. One of them has Alzheimer's. One of them is dying of ALS. Another one is dead. Um, others are, have health problems. Some are doing great. But I've gone too long with them. I didn't know these things were going on. And so an awful lot, it isn't like getting together after five years when you're 45, right? Where yeah. you've got, you know, oh, okay, you got a new job. Oh, you you got a new car. You weren't living over here. You had this great vacation. You know, this bad thing happened. Your team lost. All that stuff. You know, yeah, I, I got a, I broke my leg. I'm not going to use skiing anymore. That kind of stuff. Well, at my stage, it's like, wait a minute. I'm coping with dead people a lot. Um, and, and that's, that's weird when you're healthy you know that's that's it's it's really it's actually kind of good in some ways also i mean i'm getting you have to remember things about people that's actually the best about them right and what they brought to the world and part of dealing with that is let's gather up as much of what this person did that was really useful there kim cameron for example died last fall kim cameron alpha author of what we're doing with identity today you know his laws are going to reverberate till the end he was moses about the laws right and um coming up with the war stories actually as it were about that are really interesting you know and i just the interview i just did with these guys in korea i i mentioned kim because what ssi is about his laws it's about minimum disclosure for constrained use user control um uh justifiable parties what you're doing what you're dealing with is all that his laws are exactly where you live you know mm -hmm. it just, exactly he, just basically, right. he just basically surfaced stuff that matters their design principles really you know yeah is is the individual in charge of their lives on here good okay are they dealing with other people on a need to know basis good are the are the parties justifiable is it directed meaning that it's going to the right party <laughs> you know rather than out to the world um and then you've added another one to it which is provenance you know well where is it, this approach where? allows us to go maximum cameron like i'm very familiar with oh this i like that <laughs> right you, yeah i mean like his rule of like uh minimum disclosure for narrow narrow application narrow focus right yeah like we now can use cryptography to have zero disclosure and enforced yes. single purpose interaction. Yeah. So, yeah. So I don't have to disclose anything. And I, and what I can tell you is just like, yes, I'm a human being. I have the capability or I've been granted the right to use this one function on this one service yeah. on this one server. Right. That's zero trust architecture at it's like purest and it's right. maximum Cameron hundred percent. Yeah. That's good. I'm a Cameron maximalist, if you want to put it that way. <laughs> a Cameron maximalist. I like that.
Yeah. That's I, he, Kim Cameron is one of my like heroes. One of my he was just main inspirations. A, a totally good guy, and 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 he was a really clever operator too. In in ways that you know, people who worked with him at Microsoft said, "You have no idea. You have to be political there." And so how yeah. how was he? And he actually quit at one point, and um, and then I, I ran into him at a at a conference, and he's got a Microsoft badge. I said, what, "What? You're back with Microsoft?" He said, "Yeah. What happened?" <laughs> he said, "I held them to my terms, and all my enemies are dead." <laughs> <laughs> so That's funny. it was just it was just great, you know, and uh, oh man, I I. I you know, I, I miss him personally because, you know, he was a great guy to have wine with and talk music and talk about everything. And, um, but he also made stuff happen when, when he first got there, because he came there by acquisition. And he said, because uh, Microsoft was busy failing a passport at that point. And that was part of a, a larger initiative called Hailstorm. When, you, when you're the most hated company in the world, as they were at that time, why call what you're doing hailstorm? You know, yeah. might as well be lightning strike or <laughs> it might as well be tornado anthrax poisoning. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. <laughs> Category five hurricane. This is this is project food poisoning. Here it is. You know, anyway, uh, he said he told me when when the corpse of uh, when the corpses of hailstorm and and passport come floating down the river among the knives in his back will be mine. <laughs> <laughs> he was determined to make that thing die as soon as he got there. And I think that actually motivated him. I think he could have done with a, a lot of people do when they go by acquisition to a company, which is I get a, I get a corner office and I bide my time and I leave when, you know, when, uh, when the timing's right, you know, he retired when he was old and sick. You know, that was, and he wasn't that old. He was years younger than me, but he was, you know, he retired for, you know, the old, old fashioned reasons. Anyway, we've held forth, uh, Catherine. I know. Nice. Yeah. It's going to be an editing challenge, but it yeah, it. sorry. This is, but no, but it's great because, you know, I love these episodes where I just get to sit back and enjoy and listen and laugh and, and <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, it's great. And then I'll reflect right. on it as I'm editing. That's when I think about the, the good questions. Know. Okay, cool. guys and gals. Got a book. Until next time. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Catherine. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for.